Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is a message brought to our church by a guest speaker. We hope that it is a blessing to you, and we would love to hear how God has used it in your life. Let's take our Bibles this morning. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's go to the book of 1 Peter. I want to share a few moments together in the Word of God with you, and, and I hope it'll be an encouragement uh, to you. We've been preaching at City Baptist. I just completed last Sunday a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. And if you don't know anything about the book, I'll just give you a little bit of context to it. The book of 1 Peter is a very unique book. Of course, it's a letter. It's written by Peter. And it's unique to me because if you think about the Apostle Peter, there's a lot about the Apostle Peter in the Bible, isn't there? I mean, there, there's a lot of information, whether it's through the Gospels, of course, we know much about him. The book of Acts highlights a great portion of his ministry, uh, how he was one of the first to really take the Gospel to the Gentiles and the whole situation with the animals and the sheep. Uh, sheep, remember how weird that was? Not sheep, the sheep. You know, such a weird situation and how God used him in that. And of course, we know him very well for his denial of Christ. But as far as information that Peter gives to us, we really only have the books of First and Second Peter. And they're not very long. If you consider the rest of the books, it's not a very large book for us to have from him. But, and so to me, that's very unique that we only have these small words. But it's small words. That's not a real word. I'm from Canada, so I'm trying to work on my American English again here. Uh, uh, small words. <laughs> we don't have very much of, the, of his writings for us. But they really do make a difference, and they carry a lot of impact. So they're unique because we don't have a lot from Peter, but it's also unique as to the context of who he was writing to and what really what the government situation was, what the environment was for them as Christians. And so he's writing around A.D. 63, which if you know anything about your history, that's when Nero was just sort of coming into his crazy time of power in Rome. The Roman Empire, of course, was growing. Uh, They had accomplished a lot, conquered a lot of places. And Nero was right on the cusp of the whole burning down the city and finding someone to blame. Of course, the Christians who talked about one day Jesus returning and everything being burned up with fire, they were an easy target uh, to say, oh, they must have been the ones then that set Rome on fire. And so there was a great deal of persecution and trials and difficulty that was coming. And Peter is writing to Christians, both Jews that had been dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution. And he's also writing to Gentiles that had been saved over the last 30 years since the day of Pentecost. So we're about 30 years later when he's writing this. So we see Pentecost happening, people being dispersed. There's great persecution that's coming. And right now, Peter is writing in Rome. He's literally sitting in Rome. He's months away from his own uh, death because of his faith. He's about to be crucified upside down, as history tells us. And he sees already within the environment, within the, the culture, within the government environment there that great persecution is coming. And so he writes to these people that he calls strangers and pilgrims. And that's the title of the series or really an overriding title of the book of First Peter. He's writing to people who are scattered. They're strangers in, in their own land. And of course, for us today, we understand that we are also strangers and pilgrims on this world. We are citizens of heaven, as your pastor already mentioned. And so the life that we live, the world that we live in, the culture that we inhabit is not our home. It's not our final place, thankfully. And so we do operate in this world as strangers. We're pilgrims. We're people that are displaced. And we're looking forward to that one day that we're going to be reunited with our heavenly father and ultimately be in heaven, which is our final home. But Peter is writing to these individuals that were scattered. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to leaders who are in a difficult circumstance. He's writing to people who are going through great trials. He's writing to people that are facing persecution like you and I may never face in this life. 
Now, the reality is that our children may face that kind of persecution. And maybe some of us may indeed face that. But he's writing to individuals that are going through trials and hardship like we can't even imagine. And as we come to 1 Peter 5, as he's wrapping up this letter, it's interesting to think about. I don't know, maybe you could put yourself in this position. What would you write if you were an apostle, if you had spent time with Jesus, if you were writing to a people suffering persecution, facing death, what would you say to them? What would you say to them? I think sometimes we read scripture and we just sort of take it like, hey, this is what needed to be said. And it's true, God did breathe this through him. But there's an element of his personal, his personality. Of course, there's an element of his experience that goes into every book of the Bible that we see the different authors. But what would you say? I know if it were me, I would probably wanna write some like unknown thing. I would want to write something that I know for sure Paul didn't write about, right? <laughs> you know, I want to make sure that I include some sort of intimate detail about the life of Christ that everyone would just be blown away by. You know, I know like, oh, this will just blow you away. And you would think that. I know for us, that's probably what we would do. We try to think of some obscure thing or some new doctrine or some new teaching and the only place in the canon of scripture and all the letters that were being written, we want to make sure that we've got some unique thing. But Peter doesn't do that. Instead, what we see Peter doing is continually going back to some common themes that he covers all throughout his book. And really what he begins to talk about here in these few verses that we're gonna look at today is he begins to talk about the motivation behind the actions of the Christian life. See, so much of scripture is, deals with our motivations, doesn't it? Like, yes, there's elements of action that needs to take place, and we know that. There are, if you, you, know, if you know to do good and do it not to you, it's sin, and you understand that principle. But so much of scripture deals with the motivations, the heart behind the action, because you and I know what it's like to live looking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, but in fact, our hearts being very, very far from God. There's even times where those of us that are in spiritual leadership sometimes lead in a spiritual way from a position of emptiness. We're doing good actions, we're doing the right things, but in fact, our heart is not where it needs to be. And so Peter, in the middle of all of this, and right at the end of his letters, he's wrapping things up and he's writing to people who are going through a season of great difficulty, he gets back to the heart, the reason why these scattered strangers and pilgrims should continue on to serve the Lord even in the middle of trials. And so he talks about what we're gonna see here, three attitudes of the heart, three attitudes that I believe this morning can help you bring glory to God when you're going through trials. Three attitudes that can help you as a church family really bond together and come together and be a place of healing and of strength in order to withstand the attacks of the adversary, which is the next passage, which we're not gonna cover. I'll let you study that on your own. But he talks about attacks that come to a church body and it comes to individuals. And we know we have an adversary, of course. So he gives us these three heart attitudes and these attitudes will help strengthen us and I believe can help us focus as a church family as we look forward to the days ahead. I would say this too. If there's any of you that are out there and you're maybe a new Christian, maybe you're just a few years in or a few months in and you've wondered, you've wondered to yourself, what should I be working on? What should I be focusing on as a Christian? I wanna encourage you that these are areas, these are attitudes within your heart that can develop that will help you experience the joyful 
and fulfilled Christian life. So that's sort of a context to get us in place here. So let's go now to 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's look verses 5 through 7. It's going to be our passage today. Verses 5 through 7. He says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, this is directly connected to the first four verses, which deal with spiritual leadership within the body of Christ. And so just so you understand, this isn't about uh, anyone who's over the age of 65 being like, see, I told you, that's not that at all, okay? This is specifically talking about spiritual leadership because you and I know that unfortunately there are people who are older who you shouldn't just submit yourself to, right? Do we understand that? Okay, some of you have family members like that. Okay, so understand that. He says here, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Verse six says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And then verse seven, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. We're talking about spiritual attitudes in the Christian life. And the first one that we see here in this passage is simply an attitude of submission an attitude of submission. Now, Peter covers the subject of submission several times throughout the book. He talks about how we should be subject to the authorities that God has placed us under, how there's submission that has to happen in the home, there's submission within the local church, there's submission uh, within even our employment, the people that employ us. There's these elements of submission that permeate the Christian life. But here we see, once again, a call to an attitude of submission, not only to God, but to spiritual leaders and then also to each other. Look there at verse number five again. And he says, ye younger, likewise, this is as the same way in comparison to what we saw in the first few verses there. He says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another. You might be thinking, Paul, what are you talking about? What is he trying to get across to us here? Well, the word submit here is a very interesting word because it means to willfully place yourself under the authority of someone or some organization. The idea that he's trying to get across to us is that as believers, we must be at a place where we willfully submit ourselves in this context under the position of God-ordained spiritual leadership. And so what he's trying to say is that if you are a church, and by the way, I know you are a church that has spiritual leadership, and so as a church body that has spiritual leaders, it means that your leadership should be esteemed. It means that your leadership should be recognized and acknowledged. Your spiritual leaders should be honored and followed and obeyed. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, this is convenient. Pastor brings his friend in and he's going to talk about submitting to the pastor, right? I, I see it. I see it all over your faces. I get it. So you're, you're with me. You're like, okay, sure. I roll, right? Okay. Now, listen, I'm not saying that. Because of him, just so you know. He didn't tell me what to preach. This isn't, wasn't like a text message thread or anything. Like, hey, I could really use some help here. I, I would tell you this. As a pastor myself, when I read this verse, it doesn't give me joy. Your pastor's not over here being like, yeah, get him, right? He's not saying that at all. For those of us who are in spiritual leadership, and you are blessed with multiple people in spiritual leadership over this body, you understand that this is a sobering responsibility. The fact that God would command a church body to willfully place themselves in submission to those who are in spiritual authority, that's a very serious thing. 
And it's a serious thing because it reminds us that we are not allowed not to allow the privilege of leadership to become a temptation to misuse that privilege. In the verses prior, like I mentioned, if you want to look with me at verse number three, it says neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples and samples to the flock. See, the the leadership is not to be someone who lords over or abuses their privilege of leadership, but they are people who are to lead and exercise authority by being an example. If you would read that passage in depth and study it out, you'd understand that your leadership knows very clearly that they are not to use authoritarian methods. They're not to overlook people. There's a balance to the authority of the pastor and the leadership that must be kept in mind with all of this. And there's multiple passages of scripture that deal with this. However, what we do see here very clearly is that the flock of God, those that the leadership are called to lead, there is a attitude of submission to that authority that happens within the local church. And there's a very good reason for that. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it tells us, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. This again is within the context of spiritual leadership. Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Now that's a really sobering and a heavy verse right there. In fact, as a pastor, this is one of those verses I wish was not in scripture because what it does is it connects your soul care. It connects Honestly, your attitude and your actions directly to my standing before God and giving an account. And we know in scripture there's elements of authority and weight, and there are certain elements of authority that will give account for other people. Fathers in particular will give account for their families and, and, so, and so forth. We understand that. But as a pastor, I will literally stand before God and I will give an account for the people that are within my church. And I would tell you, if you understand what that means, you would not desire leadership so quickly. That's a big deal. That's a serious thing. And so we have here a good reason for us to be submissive because those that God has placed in spiritual authority over your church will give an account. Your pastor, your leadership will give an account for the church family. Notice here, though, that he says that they must give an account. They watch for your souls. And that's a whole very deep verse there that they may do it with. What's that word? Say it with me. Joy. Oh, man. Biblical joy that they would serve you with joy. One of the ways that you can have a joyful, fulfilled, happy pastor in leadership is if you allow yourself and willfully place yourself in that position of submission. He says, do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable with you. I'll tell you what, if you want a really unprofitable church experience, have a pastor who's in grief all the time. (laughs) Have a pastor who's always struggling, always dealing with difficulty, And if you are a person today that desires for your church body to be a healthy place, not only a healthy place for a sinner to come to know Christ, not only a place where the wayward can get right with God, but also a place for your leadership to serve the Lord with joy and with gladness that happens as you, the body of Christ, willfully submit yourselves to the local church. Now, I understand this is countercultural. It's countercultural. It's counter the flesh, by the way, isn't it? To submit ourselves. Because in our flesh, we, we always think we can do it better than everybody else, don't we? That's how we operate. That's the sinful flesh that's within us. And so it's very hard for us to put, us, put ourselves in a position of submission. But I want to tell you that the idea of rebellion and resistance against authority that is so common in our society and so common in our hearts is not a reflection of the word of God, is not a reflection of the spirit of Christ. It is actually a reflection of the world. 
And the body of Christ, the church of Christ that he gave his life for is not to be a replica of the world. We're to be the opposite of the world, in fact. And that's why Jesus comes along and through Peter tells us that, listen, this is to be a place where there's submission to God-given leadership. Now, we know, and I'm not saying that spiritual leadership does not come with checks and balances and with accountability, all of that. We understand that. But that you should be, and there should be an attitude within all of our hearts of loving, willful, supportively placing our under the authority of the local church as they put themselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know the demographic today. I don't, I don't know, uh, and really, I don't know many of you that well, and you don't know me, and I understand that. But I would say that one of the best ways, if you're saying, well, pastor, how do I, how do I put myself in that position? Where, how do I willfully place myself under the submission of spiritual authority? The, one of the best ways that you can do that is through the vehicle of church membership. And so I just encourage you, if you're not a member here at Moses Lake, you should really consider what that looks like because that's you as an individual willfully placing yourself under the submission of spiritual authority that God has ordained and God has set up here at this place. And that's one of the best ways that you can do it and can experience what it looks like to have this attitude. And so when we obey God's instruction, we understand we are obeying God himself. And so he comes along, Peter, and says, listen, and remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people that are facing death. And he's like, hey, make sure you're placing yourself under submission of spiritual authority. Why would he say that? Because God knows what is best for us. God knows where we should be as individuals. He knows the heart and the attitude. I don't know if you knew this or not, but submission was a consistent mark of the character of Jesus Christ himself. Did you know that? If there was anybody in scripture, of course, Jesus perfectly fulfills all of scripture for us and is the perfect example in all areas of scripture. But if there was anyone who lived on this life who had the right to put himself above spiritual authority, it was Jesus of Nazareth. But very clearly, even from a young age, we found him focusing not on overcoming other people, but he was quite content to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And, if, and I wanna tell you, if submission, of course, we know he submitted himself even to death, the death of the cross, when Jesus said, or when, when God was speaking to him and he was in the garden, and he says, not thy will, but uh, not my will, but thine be done, that's a position of submission as well. And Jesus, if he is willing to do that himself and give us that example, if it was for him, then it is for us as well. And so he says, you need to have an attitude of submission to spiritual authority. But I want you to notice as the verse continues there, that he also includes a mutual attitude of submission towards each other within the body of Christ. And I love this, because it could be easy for me to be like, hey, you need to submit to spiritual leadership. All right, let's move on. But the verse, he continues. He says there needs to be a mutual level of submission. And again, this is why he's talking about a heart attitude. This is an attitude that we can develop within us. Notice he says, yay, and he's not like, yay, but he's saying also, all of you be subject one to another. To put it simply, we should not be a church family with an attitude of my way or nothing at all. Rather, we submit an attitude of submission, which I think could be better understood in the context of accountability one to another. It's the idea of recognizing and realizing that we don't have it all figured out, that we need one another. And so there's an element of submission. And by the way, this, this goes far past any uh, economic statuses of anyone in our church. Don't you love that? He doesn't say, hey, and all of you who own businesses, you can submit to each other. <laughs> but those of you that work at those businesses, don't submit to each other. 
I love this. He's writing to slaves. He's writing to free people. He's writing to wealthy people. He's saying all of you, there's a mutual submission one to another within the context of the local body. And I, I love that. And so we need to be careful to place ourselves of, of being accountable, of being submissive one to another. I'm always concerned in our church body when someone, an individual, resists or does not want to be accountable to anybody. Some of you have employees like that. Don't you love that? <laughs> they don't want any accountability at all. Guess what? That's a rocky road, isn't it? That's a difficult environment. Some of you who are like that personally, you don't want anyone keeping you accountable at work, and now you're on your 10th job. You know what it's like. It's difficult. It's challenging. And the point being here is that there's a mutual accountability one to another. And God desires for us to be accountable because then we would thrive in that environment. Those of you who have great environments at your work, the reason it's great is because there's mutual accountability, right? You yourself are doing your very best and you know that your coworkers are doing their very best. And because all of you are, are doing that and you're encouraging each other, in the same way that it creates a wonderful work environment, the church body is awesome when a group of people are doing their best to serve the Lord and following the Lord, and they're encouraging one another, and they're saying, hey, how are you doing? And you're encouraging them in the Lord, and there's this mutual accountability that's taking place. That's a place where you can thrive. That's a place where new Christians can thrive, by the way. And that's a place where people want to be a part of it. They want to join. They want to come alongside, and they want to experience it. And it all comes down to an attitude of submission. It is essential for a spiritual person who's walking with the Lord that we have an attitude of submission. So I gotta ask you, how is your attitude of submission today? Are you always finding yourself in the place where you're just, you're just always irritated? You're always irritated with the leadership. You're always irritated with others. You're always struggling. I wonder, maybe it's because you simply don't have this spiritual attitude of submission. And so Peter, writing to Christians who are facing death, who are uh, 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 being persecuted, who have lost their jobs because of their faith, have lost their careers, maybe their businesses, because they would not sign off on their complete and total submission to Rome, which was the requirement. He's writing to them and says, hey, make sure that you have an attitude of submission. Even in difficult political environments, have an attitude of submission within the body of Christ. Secondly, though, we see here an attitude of humility, an attitude of humility. Look at verse five and six again. He says, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now this is a really interesting visual picture. To be clothed with humility, notice here how he says, be clothed with humility. It literally means to tie with a knot is what it means. Today, we would understand it as putting on an apron. Now, I won't ask how many of you wear aprons all the time. I know your pastor does when he's flipping burgers. He's all about it, you know, kiss the cook and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of cool. Uh, okay, anyway, I'm just joking. He barbecued yesterday, and I didn't see any aprons anywhere. But uh, you understand this uh, uh, in that context. You know, some of you, maybe you have to wear like a thick, heavy, like leather apron or something to protect your clothing uh, while you're at work if you're in specific jobs. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that the individual Christian should have an attitude of humility that is placed around you and it's tied with a knot, not a bow that it can be untied, but it's tied with a knot that it's literally, it's who you are is what he's trying to say. He's trying to say to us as believers that you are to be 
people who are clothed with humility. And if you use the idea of an apron, which was the context that he's talking about here, it's the idea that you're putting on something around you. You're putting on this humility. It's part of who you are. You're tying it on. And in fact, when you do that, it actually protects you. It protects you. Now you say, well, what in the world would humility protect me from? I want to tell you, humility protects you from probably the greatest destroyer in the Christian life. Humility protects you from the greatest enemy of joy and contentment. Humility, if you are clothed in humility, it protects you from the greatest divider of relationships. You know what it is? It's pride. It's pride. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us, these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, there's seven that are an abomination to him. And the first one he puts in here, a proud look, a proud look. Proverbs 16, verse 18, he says that pride is what goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit, that's the idea of a lift up spirit before a fall. In spiritual leadership, we know that it is a qualification that you not be lifted up with pride. He says that that's one of the dangers of being a young leader is that you will be lifted up with pride. And it's, not, it's something that should not be a part of the life of a leader. And I think if I could pinpoint one sin that does more division and more conflict, it is pride. It's the elevation of oneself in our own mind. It's a desire to be preeminent above anybody else. I mean, it's our social media culture, isn't it? Look at me, right? Look at my duck lips, you know, like selfies. I can make a heart with my fingers, like it's all, I mean, if you've ever done the research to see how many people die from taking selfies, you should look that up. It's terrifying, by the way. How many people fall off cliffs and bridges and, uh, uh, trying to take photos of themselves? I mean, that's the ultimate fall, right? Pride before the fall. I think ultimately it's right there. But it's our culture. It's our society. And listen, if you're not care- careful, it so easily comes into the church. I mean, we live in a world today that's like you get yours and don't worry about anybody else. Promote yourself, promote your lifestyle, promote what you want to do, promote what you think. Forget everybody else, just make it all about you. And that's pride, and it is the destroyer, and it's going to destroy our culture that we're in right now. And if you're not careful, it will destroy your life, and it will destroy the church. And it, and it applies to everybody. This is not just people with means or people with things. Everybody, regardless of your economic or social status, you struggle with pride. Every single one of us does. And he's saying here that you need to have an attitude of humility because if pride comes into the church, it will ultimately destroy it. Regardless of where it starts, whether it's in the leadership or whether it's within the body of Christ. Humility is essential then. That's why why I love the picture of tying it on. It's a protective garment. It protects you from pride. It protects you from great destruction. You know, we often think like, oh, well, Satan's our enemy and we always got to be on the alert for him, you know? We got to make sure that, you know, he's being bound, <laughs> which anyway, I won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> we need to make sure that he's, you know, not in the church, you know, get out of the church door, Satan. Listen, he didn't have to, you know, walk in through some, you know, demonic <laughs> person. He just, he just elevates your pride a little bit. He just begins to develop that heart within you. And we must be aware of it. I love how someone put it this way, he said that God walks with the humble. He reveals himself to the lowly. He gives understanding to the little ones. He discloses his meaning to pure minds, but he hides his grace from the proud. Here's the point. Humility protects us, but humility also brings us closer to God. It allows us to know God in a way 
that you'll never know him unless there is humility. Unless there is humility. If you want to know God's grace, if you want to get closer to him, then you must lay aside your pride. And humility needs to be, you need to clothe yourself in humility. That's why he says again in verse number six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Other words, in other, in other words, we must see God for who he truly is and we need to see ourselves for who we are. We are nothing. We are nothing. He is everything. God's weakness is greater than our strength. And he is all things to all people and he is all things to us. His foolishness is greater than our wisdom. He is the creator. We are the created. All things are made by him and for him. Nothing exists without him. He is the sovereign God. And above all things, we have a choice to make in our Christian life. And that is we need to humble ourselves to him and let him deal with the exaltation. Let him deal with making things right in this life. The choice for us is, are we going to continue to go our own way in rebellion are we going to continue to live in pride? Are we going to continue to live in the consequences of our prideful attitudes and our prideful spirits? Or will we humble ourselves? And not just humble ourselves, but be clothed in humility. I love that. Tie it on with a knot. Don't let anybody take it from you. I mean, make it a part of who you are and experience the protection and the exaltation and the connection of Christ at the right time. Now, I realize there might be some of you this morning that have never humbled yourselves to the point of recognizing your need of a savior. There might be some of you here today that you are still trying to figure out a way or convince yourself in your mind through your own pride, I would say, that you are a believer, that you're a Christian, that you're saved because of something you've done or your opinion of God. I wanna tell you, you need to humble yourself before the savior. You need to realize and recognize your need for a savior. And that takes great humility. And I ask you, would you humble yourself in that way today. But those of us who know Christ, would you lay aside your pride? Would you stop battling for the recognition, for the exaltation? Would you stop battling for the acknowledgement? Would you stop battling to be recognized or seen or viewed in a certain way and rather clothing yourself in pride, rather than clothing yourself in who you want people to think you are, clothe yourself with humility and watch God do that work in your life. Man, it's so special. When you're clothed, you're protected, you're in a position of growth. But I want you to also see here, lastly, there's the attitude of submission, there's the attitude of humility, but Peter continues, and he gives us now an attitude of dependence. An attitude of dependence. I love this. Verse number seven. Why don't you say it with me? Because you probably all memorized this in Sunday school, right? Good. Casting, say it with me, ready? Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. This is so great. I love this verse, and I'm almost done, I promise. He says here that we are to have an attitude of submission to leadership. We're to have an attitude of humility, even when we're facing death for our faith. And then at the end, he says, listen, you need to have an attitude of complete and total dependence. And he says here that you are to cast all your care. I'm going to break it down for you, okay, so we understand what this verse is saying. He says casting, that means throwing. Think of the idea of throwing out a net, we saw some guys in the lake this morning and they were casting uh, you know, their, their poles and I shouted at them, come to church, but they didn't hear me. So anyway, they were casting their, their rods and I believe they didn't catch anything today. So um, it's the idea of throwing though, throwing. So throwing a net, throwing. 
So he says casting, throwing. Then he says all. In the Greek, that means all. That means everything. So throwing all your care, that word means anxiety. Okay, let's talk about this for a minute. Because we, many of you understand your anxieties far better than if I said, tell me about your cares. Care is a word that we would say kind of sometimes gives us a false idea of the way that we view it and the way we interpret it. We think of, oh, I care about somebody. And, and we'll talk about, okay, the things I care about. But if I say, tell me about your anxieties, okay, that's a different approach, isn't it? So he's saying to us, throw all your anxieties upon him. Who's that? That's Jesus. So he says, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a difficulty, in the middle of trying to live as a believer in a world that desperately wants us removed from this planet, he says, listen, you need to be the kind of person that will throw, literally throw and cast your anxieties about life, the anxieties you have about your future, the anxieties about your relationships, the anxieties about uh, whatever it is, everything in your life, loss and difficulty, you need to throw all of it upon God. Here's the point, church, is that Jesus, God, desperately wants you to be dependent upon him. That's why he says it. I mean, have you ever said to somebody like, hey, call me if you ever need anything? And then you're like, I hope they never call me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> How many of you know someone who will take you up on that offer if you say it to them, right? So you're very careful not to say that to them. You know that. Okay, well, I say, hey, I really need a new car right now. Okay, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But Jesus literally says, I want you to do that. I want you to throw all of your cares. I want you to throw everything, all of your anxieties upon me. What that means is that there's nothing too big and there's nothing too small that you can take to the Lord. You know, some of you might be operating on the idea that God is only there for you in the big things. Maybe that's the only time you call upon him. I've had people say to me, literally, I'll say to them, hey, I'll pray with you about that. They're like, don't bother God about it. He's got bigger things to deal with. I'll deal with this and I'll go to him for the bigger stuff. I had people say that to me. And I, this, this verse blows that out of the water because <laughs> he's saying all, no matter how difficult the circumstance, no matter how small the, the, no matter how small it may seem in the context of your life, he's saying, I want you to bring everything and the reason is, is because God has an intense care for you. The question is, is who do you turn to when you have a problem? Who do you turn to when you have a problem? You know, your pastor said that, um, you know, that, that he and I are good friends and we really are. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you remember this, maybe a month ago, I called him. And, and frankly, I didn't really let him say much because I just started complaining. And I was just like, oh, this and this and this and this, you know, all this stuff. And your pastor, he's so nice, right? He's like, oh, man. That's all he said, I think, you know? He, he didn't try to tell me, like, what I was doing wrong. He didn't try to tell me. He didn't even try to tell me, like, hey, come on, man, get it together. You're a pastor. Come on, suck it up. Let's go. What's your problem? Figure it out, you know? He didn't say that at all. He said, man, I, you know what he said? And you've probably heard him say this to you. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Why is that? Why, why would I call him when I'm just feeling like I'm going crazy. You know why I called him? Because I know he actually cares about me. I know that he won't judge me. I know that he won't judge me when I kind of just blow off some steam and, and complain a little bit to him. And so in life, it's really great to have someone in your life like that, isn't it? That you can just call without judgment and you can just, you can just share all of your difficulties and human relationships are so wonderful in that context, and you understand that, but I want you to know that God is next level that way. He's next level. 
that you can call him and you can, you can just, you can just pray. You can cry out at any point in any place. You can, you can just say, God, this is what I'm going through. Think about it. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who is righteous, holy, and good. He cares so much about you and he cares so much about me that he wants our anxieties to be brought to him. He wants us to bring those difficulties to him. That's why Isaiah could say with confidence that he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows and he's able to carry your sorrow and he's able to carry your grief if you bring it to him. Jesus in prayer over an unrepentant and rebellious cities, he said to them, he said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you should find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The point is that we need to make Jesus the answer of our anxieties. Jesus needs to be the one that we turn to. It's natural for us to be anxious. I mean, think about the recipients. If you are facing death by government for being a believer, if someone just ratted you out, if someone at your workplace said, hey, I heard they're a follower of the way, you literally could lose your life. It was open season on these followers of Christ. And I think they understood anxiety probably more than we understand anxiety. And he's saying to them, even with that anxiety, even facing the end of your life, the most difficult of human circumstances, you can throw that to God. You can give that to him. He wants to hear that from you. Every aspect of life, we can give our anxieties to God. And I want to challenge you, rather than placing all of your anxieties on your spouse, rather than placing all of your anxieties on your children, parents, rather than placing your anxieties on coworkers or parents or friends, and I'm not diminishing at all the blessing of human relationships that God gives to us, but I want to tell you that your spouse and your kids were never intended to carry the burden and the weight of your anxieties. That was not how the relationship was intended to be. Some of you, I want you to just imagine the joy that would come back into your marriage if you weren't putting on your spouse every one of your anxieties and every one of your struggles. By the way, a godly spouse can help you so much with that and can encourage you with that. But some of your, some of your spouses and your partners are, are living under a weight that they were never intended to carry. God is intended to carry that weight. And because you are struggling in your own faith, you're putting it all on them. And what a burden to carry. What a burden to carry. Imagine the joy that could come back to that relationship. Some of you, I wanna challenge you I think your child would probably flourish a little bit more if they weren't living under the pressure of your anxiety and fear that you are placing on them. And sometimes it's subconscious, parents. Sometimes it's subconscious. And we need to be spiritually aware. We need to be spiritually aware of sometimes how we place unrealistic anxiety and fear into our own children's lives. And what we're doing when we do that is we're, we're holding them back. We're holding them back. The point out of this is that, listen, there is someone who can carry all of your anxieties, the full weight of it, the full brunt of it, and it's your Savior, and it's because he cares for you. He's anxious for you. I want you to look there at the verse. It says, casting all your cares upon him, and then it says, for he careth for you. You know what that is? It's the same word. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's a slightly different word. Not the same word, slightly different word. So here's the idea of it. Okay, I want you to understand. This is really great, and I'm almost done. So when it talks about our cares, 
It's a word that means varied and differing anxieties. We know, uh, we know earlier on in 1 Peter, he talks about various trials that are coming into our life. So he says, okay, you need to take all of your various and different anxieties, small, big, whatever it may be, and you need to cast it upon God. And then it says, but he careth for you. What that word means, it actually means a singular focus. So our anxieties are widely and varied. God has a singular anxiety. If you, if you could say that God has anxiety, <laughs> he has a singular anxiety. And, and the idea of the word means that it's an anxiety with forethought. Now, here's what's so great about it. What it means is that God says, I want you to bundle up all your, your varied anxieties and put them on me. But I want you to know, Christian, that I'm singularly focused on you. I'm singularly, singularly concerned about you. And I love that idea. I love that concept that we're all like, Woo! <laughs> you know, we're widely varied. We got all these issues in life. And God's like, I'm focused just on you. I'm focused on caring for you. I, I love that. He has one care and that care is you. These are spiritual attitudes of a mature believer. And when I consider, the, again, the context of Peter writing to these people in great difficulty, it amazes me how he just boils it down to some heart attitudes. And what I've discovered in my own life is that these three attitudes are probably the three greatest areas that I struggle in. But they're also the three greatest areas that I experience the most victory in in my life. When I see breakthrough in my life, when I see the lights sort of click on finally in my head, and I begin to really connect with God, and I begin to understand the Christian life as I should, it always comes back to these three things. Submission, humility, and dependence. And this is the hard attitude that Peter is getting across to these individuals who are facing such great difficulty. And I want to tell you, this is the blessed life, is to live in, in these three attitudes. And it's an encouraging place to focus our attention. Just for a moment, just think. Just in your own mind, use your imagination what your Christian life would be like if you actually did cast all your care upon him. Imagine the difference. Because I think for all of us, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm walking with God, I'm serving in church, I'm, you know, everything's going okay, but boy, when I'm alone, <laughs> I got, man, this thing just takes, this takes over my life. God says, cast all your care. Maybe you struggle with pride, maybe you struggle with really learning what it looks like to clothe yourself in humility and remove pride from your life. I promise you, I promise you, it can radically transform if you can lock into your life these three attitudes of the spiritual believer. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning for a time of prayer. And I'll pray and then I'll turn the service over to your pastor. But let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this just straightforward challenge from someone who walked so closely with you. I'm sure that Peter, as he was writing this, was thinking about his own struggle with pride and how it was pride that led him to deny the Savior. It was pride to think that he could somehow defend Jesus in the garden with a sword. It was pride to think that he could somehow be one of the first and over all of the, over the disciples. He was one of, it was pride that brought so many difficulties into his life. It was pride that caused division among him and other 
disciples and other apostles and leaders. And it was pride that caused him to even separate himself from Gentiles, even though Jesus, you were telling him you need to go to them. It was pride, so much pride. And I'm sure he was thinking about that. I'm sure he was thinking about how often there's examples of how he didn't cast his care upon you, how he tried to take matters into his own hands, how he tried to look at the storms rather than at the Savior. And Lord, we must confess this morning that we often find ourselves struggling in these three areas. And I thank you for giving us these attitudes to pursue, these attitudes that we can live I guess in this world, this broken, fallen world, we can live at a different level. And Father, I pray for the person today that might be struggling. And I don't just say might, I know we're struggling because I know the, own str- the struggle of my own heart. And I pray, God, that you would give them grace to make things right. I pray that they would willfully live in submission, recognize that as being the best, for their spiritual growth and development. And Lord, help them to understand the protection that comes from pursuing humility. And Lord, you're so gracious and you're so kind. You give us such long suffering. You allow us to struggle and you call us back to yourself. And maybe today is that day for someone in this room that you're calling back to yourself to return to these proper attitudes. And I pray that it would really make an impact and a difference in their life going forward. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.